Welcome to the Get to Vet podcast, where we bridge the knowledge gaps in the military transition process so you can focus on what's ahead. Hey, Get to Vet listeners, this is Mike. And now for my personal disclaimer, although I am active duty military, I'm not an official spokesperson of the United States Navy. Any of my views expressed on the Get to Vet podcast are based on my personal experience. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, uh, Get to Vet community, this is Trevor Maxwell, and it looks like he's got his mute button off, so I'll let my partner in crime say hi. Yep, I think I finally uh, figured it out today. Uh, yeah, I am off mute. Uh, this is Mike Riggs, and uh, happy to be here. Happy to have Carl here today, and uh, it's going to be a great one, I think. Yeah, uh, Carl reached out to us, which uh, is awesome. We encourage everybody, if you have something to share and want to come on the show, definitely hit Mike and I up. Carl uh, Forsling is a uh, former Marine Corps helicopter and uh, CH-46 and Osprey aviator, which I think the Ospreys, that, that's the one that I always have a lot of respect for because <laughs> I've, I've heard those things were scary. But uh, we'll, we'll let him introduce himself. He's got a ton of great articles that uh, we were perusing through, and I, I'd like to hit on some of the topics today. So Carl, say hi to everybody. Hey, uh, good to talk to both of you. Uh, Carl Forsling, uh, yeah, like you said, former Marine officer, pilot, uh, CH-46s, V-22s, did 20 years of that. Um, always thought I wanted to keep flying. And so the first job I did was uh, flying for uh, Baltimore police. And I did that for uh, about two years and realized, you know what, I screwed this whole thing up. So I had to start over, uh, lucky enough to have the right events. And I ended up going into a uh, business development for military aircrafts and uh, sort of finding a niche for myself there. Uh, But I made uh, a lot of the same mistakes I would have counseled other people against uh, looking in retrospect. So uh, I write a lot of articles on my off time, you know, call it a side gig, call it what you will. But uh, um, a lot, I've had a lot of time to reflect on that. And uh, I think I'd made just about every mistake uh, you can make. And I'm happily at a good place right now. Um, but, uh, there are a lot of ways to go wrong. I don't think the military does everyone a lot, whole lot of favors in trying to make sure they get to the right place once they're out the door. You are spot on. Couldn't agree more. Well, okay. Let's, let's talk about that then. What are some of the things, uh, we'll start off with that, that you think that, uh, you probably did wrong when you got out. Well, I mean, to, I guess to start at the very beginning, um, or not the very beginning, but at least the point where. I think a lot of people screw it up is not making a deliberate mis- decision on whether to go or stay. Um, so I was a pilot. So part of the deal with being a pilot is there's a pretty heavy service obligation just for the training that you get from the military. So, I mean, you're in it for a minimum, by the time you're done with the training and your commitment, you're in for a minimum of eight. And depending on the service, you might be over 10 years by the time you have the decision whether to stay or go. Um, now, Obviously, different officer programs, different listing programs, they all have different aspects to it. You know, at four years, you can sort of chalk it up to a childhood indiscretion. Like, oh, yeah, my first job is kind of crappy. And, oh, well, you know, I have a couple funny stories about being in the military. You know, after you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you're at some key life decisions, right? And um, the structure of the military, structure of the systems as far as retirement, the, up until recently, it was 20 years or nothing. Uh, vesting, you know, uh, which is, you know, illegal in the civilian world, uh, encourages bad decisions. And the military doesn't really, it, it, on both the enlisted and the officer side, it's, it sees it as we need to keep you in here. 
we don't really give you a whole lot of decision-making help as far as whether this is the right decision to keep you in longer, whether that's for your goals or our goals and trying to sync up uh, the right people to stay in and the right people to get out. They just sort of try and make it as competitive as possible and hopefully they get the best people to stay. Um, so as that applies to me, um, I got into the end of my first commitment, came to uh, actually Pensacola, Florida for an instructor tour basically because I wanted to get the hours I needed to be competitive for a job on the outside. And for a variety of reasons, the, the Osprey being one of them, you know, the chance to fly the Osprey came up. So I'm like, Hey, I want to stay in and get the chance to fly this aircraft that doesn't exist on the outside. Um, but I really didn't uh, have a deliberate plan. It was very happenstance. Um, I, in retrospect, I could have chosen that assignment in Pensacola off, probably would not have done that because I was done in, a, in sort of a fit of peak after having a bad deployment coming back and Hey, I'm going to get the hell out. Screw this place. Um, so, but did I, did anybody ever discuss that as a career option? You know, Hey, maybe you want to think about the reserves. Uh, maybe you need to think about doing some other things. You're at your, your thirties. You have, you know, there's always that trade-off behind yes, go 20 and have that nice retirement check, but also there's, okay, maybe you can still serve your country in the reserves, but start building that outside career, or maybe you don't want to do any of that. But there's no guidance or deliberate instruction in that at all at an institutional level. So right from there, you're picking the people who stay in at 10 or else the people are going to stay there at 20. No one gets out between 10 and 20 years. It's just a fact of life. And that hurts the military because the personnel mix isn't right. They have way too many mid to senior grade enlisted officers. There's way too many majors and lieutenant colonels. Uh, you know, for the Army and Marines, and then 20 is the next separation point, and then you have another calling of people who either need to get out because of time and grade or uh, decide to get out because that's the first time they can get their money. Uh, so that the whole decision point you've, you know, in the outside world called adverse selection. You don't, your, your incentives don't align with who you want to stay, who you want to go, and it doesn't work for either the individuals or the military. It's suboptimal, right? So the transition isn't like, oh, crap, I'm getting out in six months. What do I do now? The transition should be, okay, from the time your first initial commitment is up, back that off some. Are you going to stay in or are you going to get out? Okay, I may have passed my 10 years. I'm going to stay in for the long haul. Okay, 10 years from now, what, is this, what do I need to do to prepare myself to get out? Um, is it tuition assistance to get that second, you know, another degree or your first degree? Is it, you know, what postings? It's, uh, it's, Transition isn't, this is your light, it's not transition to get out and get your first job. It should be, I've got to plan my entire life in somewhere, or at least be prepared to live my life after get out of the military. We don't approach it as such. We treat it as, how do we make sure these guys aren't homeless and destitute six months after they're out? That's the problem the military tries to solve, and they do okay, but really, if you want to turn people into better citizens, more productive Americans, and a lot of veterans problems that we have, you really need to sort of take it as sort of a more of a whole person, whole life approach. Yeah. And so you're, we were talking there about um, obviously, hopefully they want to retain the top talent. I think something that I've, I've kind of noticed uh, at least, you know, throughout my career in the Navy, I don't know, maybe the Marine Corps is the same way a lot of times they had the adverse effect and that you're talking about the adverse uh, selection piece. What I saw, and I think this is probably, especially in the, the officer community is 
those people who are awesome and top performers and you know, the, the people that you really wanted to stay in a lot of times, those were the ones who were like, I'm going to do my time and get out because I know I can go do something else. And, you know, kind of referencing one of your articles about safe spaces in the military, like it kind of is, it's a, it's a career safe space for a lot of people who, uh, you know, based off of what I saw in the Navy is like, I don't know if I could go do anything else. I, I'm not even going to try. I'm here. I feel safe and comfortable. I'm not getting out from under the blanket. I'm going to stay in bed for 20 years. Um, so I thought that was interesting that you brought that up because that's, you know, there's a lot of, of, of people in the military that, you know, it's like, would we really be any worse off if, if you got out? Probably not. Yeah. I think that's a real, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle on the issue, right? Um, I think there's, there's definitely a flavor. I think it's, there's a lot of, uh, it's senior staff NCOs and the Marine Corps, the Sergeant majors who will tell a Marine, like, you know, you know, it's scary out there. You know, you, you know, what else place is giving you three hots in a cot, you know, and, and you don't want to get out Marine. And then there's the people who are, you know, who get out like, Oh, you, everyone who stays in is a chump, you know, they're, they're just doing it, you know, <laughs> doing it for the man. And, and, and really it's, it's neither one of those. It, it's really, you got to line you know, your aptitude and your, your, what you see is your animated purpose in life and, and your goals. And yeah, I'm not going to cut down someone who gets out after one enlistment or someone who stays in for life, but you have to make sure it's done for the right reasons. And if the only thing that's keeping you in the military is the fact that it's a steady paycheck and you're pretty sure it's not going to go out of business, well, then you're in it for the wrong reason. You know, there is, and by the same token, you know, if, there's plenty of people who think the civilian world is far more lucrative than it really is. You know that, Oh yeah, I'm going to get out and I'm going to, me and my buddy are going to start a moving company. And we're going to make a million dollars. Like, you know, slow down champ. There's a lot of steps between here and there. Um, but you have to make sure that you, again, everything is aligned and think of it as a, a whole process. The military keeps great people, but it also loses a lot of ones. Just like you said, that are just sick of the crap and, uh, you know, so there's, and there's people who stay in 20 because, you know, what the, the Marine Corps called it, the road retired on active duty. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you, they, after a certain number of years, they're just not leaving. And so they get shuffled from place to place. And again, I, I think that goes to everyone needing to be honest with themselves, both the individual and the institution about the institution being a lot more selective and then individuals being more honest with themselves and educating themselves about what they need to do to prepare for that next step. So for you, like your, your personal decision, obviously you said, Hey, I'm going to stay until 20 and then at 20, cause it, you're, you're at about the same spot I was. Right. I was like, I, I like what I'm doing, everything now being on a team. And I got to the point where I was that crossroads was coming up and I was like, okay, do I want to go past this? Do I want to stay here? And, you know, ultimately I made the decision. I was like, you know what? Well, I'm not going to put off the next chapter of my life just because I'm, you know, <laughs> scared to do it. Uh, you know, I thought I could get out now or I could get out five years from now, but I'm going to get out. So yeah, I, I was just like, ah, screw it, man. I'm going to, I'm going to do it now. But did you kind of, have that same, that same thought process or was yours different? I mean, I said, I came up to that uh, 10 year ish point and I was dead set on getting out when I came into my last, my that instructor assignment, like I'm going to get the hours and be competitive go to do, you know, federal law enforcement flying or you know, get a contract job or whatever. They waved the Osprey at me and that got me in, 
you know, a little bit at a time. So I had to, you know, sign up for another four years to get that. And then they said, well, you get a bonus if you sign up for six. And I'm like, okay, I'll take the bonus too. And they had me the 16. And uh, before you knew it, I, I did that sort of ghost walk to 20. And that's, uh, um, I think it worked out well in the end. Um, but again, it, it wasn't a conscious choice. And then 20 is like, well, I'm not, uh, not getting selected for a command anytime soon. And uh, yeah, yeah the, do the door's uh, slapping me on the butt or I'm opening it myself. So I might as well uh, do it on my own terms here. Um, and again, at that point, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. And that's, in retrospect, worked out well by accident. But you don't want things to work out well by accident. They need to work out well kind of by design. And I had no design at the time. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like me. I, I, you know, I came in in 91 and then September 10th of 91. So 9-11 happened. I had just graduated dive school and I was getting ready to put my whites on to go report to EOD school the day that 9-11 happened. So I was in the middle of transition from being an electronics technician to go, go through the EOD pipeline. And then once I got to my right around my 20 year mark, you know, I, I decided I didn't want my practice wife anymore. So I, I ended up uh, going through that process. And, and then with, fortunately for EOD, we were in such high demand at that time, they were throwing quite a bit of money at us to stay in and go to from 19 to 25, which they eventually kind of caught us on that because they were actually giving us money to stay between 19 and 20. And then there was money. It was a six year commitment, but somebody finally ran the math and was like, Hey, uh, you know, your knuckleheads are going to stay in from 19 to 20. Anyway, we're only going to give you 20 to 25. So they caught us in the math, but I ended up taking that reset button, you know, and then, you know, I stayed in until by the time I was 25 years paying off the, what we call the blood money, uh, mm -hmm. paid the blood money off. And then, you know, I was a CMC at EOD school where I felt like I still had purpose and meaning and, and it had an effect on things. And then, you know, I went to work as a defense fellow up on Capitol Hill and it was extremely eye-opening to see the hundred thousand foot view and really meet mm -hmm. some of these folks, you know, you have like constituents that are coming in, you meet with constituents all day long and they are 30 minute meetings. And it's like, it's kind of like speed dating with, but with constituents and it's an awesome way to, you know, learn, but you also, you're meeting with some pretty fascinating people. You might be meeting with defense folks one minute. And then the next thing you know, there's the, the pancreatic cancer association wants to meet with you. And then I'm across the table with this man or woman that has like stage four terminal pancreatic cancer. And they're taking their time to come up here to champion their cause to try to get my boss to vote for or champion more funding towards pancreatic cancer through the National Defense Authorization Act. And that put a lot of things in perspective for me. So when I left that tour and I went back down to where I'm at now and I have people complain about things like, oh, you know, these boots suck or these knives suck or oh, uniform is, I'm like, he, uh, I, I really, it's time for me to go. And it's fortunately for me, that's right at my 30 year mark, but I have, I definitely know when people say, you'll know when it's time, when it's time. And let me tell you, it's time. And DC definitely accelerated that by putting so many of those things into a very true, real perspective. Yeah. I don't think people, and, and we, 
the military has a lot of, I think partially because of the pride people have in the service, they tend to think that what they're doing is the hardest thing in the entire world and nothing on the outside could possibly equal what you're doing right now in, diff in the level of difficulty uh, or what people go through or the sacrifices they make. Uh, they may be a different in kind, but people on the outside have this, you know, many of the same things, you know, again, different varieties, but in all that people are doing, you know, have their own challenges and they don't realize that, you know, it is, uh, it's neither, you know, all sunshine, rainbows and unicorns, nor is it gloom and doom. Uh, but there, I don't think people, because it's so insulated, it's just like how many people live in Jacksonville, North Carolina. I spent probably two thirds of my career in, in that town, very much a Marine city. I guarantee 90% of Marines don't know more civilians than maybe their next door neighbor. And that's if they're lucky. Um, and that's not right or wrong. It's just the way things are, but you totally do not have an appreciation of the way things are. And those things that's, uh, uh, people in the civilian world deal with, um, you know, on, on the good and bad and, uh, having that outside perspective, you know, it, it leads you, you diagnose the wrong things that are important to you. Uh, and I'll just give an example is, you know, so I, I was a, a pilot. So I figured what I'm going to do here next is fly aircraft. And the thing I hate about the Marine Corps is all the paperwork and the BS and the watch standing and then um, the inspections, and all the rest. So I'm going to go, go fly and I'm, that's all I'm going to do. And so I got out, uh, you know, doing all the, the pilot job boards and there's unique job hunt services for pilots and all that. So I, I found a couple of candidates. And I found my, what I thought was going to be my dream job flying for a police department up in Baltimore. And after doing a whole lot of uh, red ass to get the job and had to go through the no kidding police academy and all the rest to, to fly for the city. Um, I finally got my job. I'm flying four hours a day, every day. I'm flying every day, but I'm not any, don't have the same thing I had in the Marine Corps. Um, it's, I thought this is what I needed. I thought this was the best part, but it's not. It's one, to some extent, the people, but also the, the challenge of it, right? So unlike in military flying, I'm sure in, in every field, it's a little bit like this. You know, there's always another level of, of doing something. So there's, if you're a line pilot, there's always a, a section lead when you're in charge of two aircraft. And then there's division lead of three, and then there's instructor qualifications. And there's always one more thing you can do. Uh, and then, you know, different mission sets, all the rest civilian world. It's like, okay, we hired you to do this thing and we want you to do that thing over and over as long as we pay you until you're, until you're done with it. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, didn't turn out to be the flying that I was really searching for. It was the purpose and the people and the, the challenge of it, um, which is something you can meet, not necessarily through flying. I mean, yeah, I miss going up in the air and going 200 knots. I mean, that's, it's, it's a good way to spend a day. But it's not the sort of, I was only doing that 20 hours a month in the Marine Corps. So what was I there in the first place for the other, whatever is 140 months, you know, work, day, work hours in the month. It was all this other stuff. Um, so you have to figure out what is going to be that purpose, that fulfillment, all the rest. Um, because it's probably not the actual thing you're doing that's doing it. It's, it's all the stuff around that that gives it meaning and purpose and all the rest. If you're, if you're trying to get your your military high for the rest of your life. Well, you're, you're never going to find it. Even if you're uh, going to law enforcement or, or whatever dangerous profession, that's net that chasing the dragon is never going to really work out for you in the end. Uh, you've got to find whatever is giving you that meaning. I think the purpose um, is number one, but then all the other things you have to look for, you know, follow on down the line in terms of priority. Yeah. I, that, that tends to be a big one, the sense of purpose and, Something else that, you know, I know you've written about too, and Mike kind of brought that up, um, the, 
sort of like the sense of entitlement that uh, it, it's, it's just something that's started to become pervasive, right? We look at like the guys in Vietnam who came back and people were calling them baby killers and stuff. And I, I think that, that, you know, those types of events maybe had a huge effect on folks that came home from the Gulf war when everybody was like, yeah, you guys are awesome and great. And, and so now, you know, like, like Mike was saying, now guys are complaining about, uh, these boots suck, these knives, whatever, you know, how come you guys don't do military discounts? I, you know, I saw that you had, had written a couple of things along those lines, maybe not necessarily those examples, but, um, I, I read some of those things that you wrote and the one that I liked was the Marine Corps times article about the captain who was mad that <laughs> they wouldn't pay for his MBA. Yeah, that was that was the most recent one. I thought we kind of gotten over the uh, what I, I like to call it the veteran entitlement syndrome a couple years back. I think, like anything else, and probably in anything in history, it goes in cycles, right? So Vietnam was obviously the low point, you know, of you know regard for the military, and that's for a lot of reasons. And then you know we sort of you know Reagan and we Gulf War and we hit this high points, and then we war on terror, and we probably overcorrected the wrong way. So now it's like there's people that the military can do no wrong. Um, and now we sort of, we've 20 years of war has finally sort of ground that the edges off that a little bit granted, but there's still that attitude, you know, and a certain degree of the thank you for your service. Hey, that's, that's great. Appreciated. Yeah. I'm like, I have, I have, I'll ask for the 10% off at Lowe's too. I'm not going to, you know, hide that shame, but, uh, but some people think it's like, Hey, I'm a veteran. You owe me this. You owe me a job. You, you know, owe me free college tuition. Um, look, you, you signed a contract. This is a volunteer force. You get, you get what you were promised. I'm not going to say there aren't cases where someone has fallen through the system and they're supposed to get X and they never got it. And that's a shame. And we have to do everything to make sure you get everything you're entitled to. Um, but to think that, um, you know, you are uniquely, you know, entitled to whatever because of your veteran status is just, it's misguided. And also kind of the word service is there for a reason. It's not, you serve four years and now everyone has to treat you like a king for the rest of your life. You, you know, you served four years, you got the experience, you got a lot of life experience and things that other people don't get. And you get a, a metric butt ton of actual benefits that very few people other also get. But are you entitled to everlasting gratitude? No, probably not. And you need to keep in perspective. Again, going back to that thing, you're not really, what Mike was saying about how you don't realize what other people have going on. Um, I mean, for all the complaining that we do about pay, and not to say that, especially in the you know, lower grades, pay is not great. But when you think about average national pay, the military stacks up pretty well. You know, By the time you're in 10 years, your family income is... You know, if you're a staff sergeant with 10, you're above the median U.S. income and you have a fully paid for health plan and a retirement plan and all the rest. And again, not princely salary, but you weren't promised a princely salary or promised those paying benefits. Yeah. And it's up to you to take the best advantage of them to set yourself up after you're out. Well, there's other types of compensation just besides your pay, but I don't like I always get mad when I go on Facebook and I see especially from people who have never served when they they post these memes that they did absolutely no research on. And they're like, Oh, members of Congress get this for life. And, and soldiers have to work 3000 hours a week and they get paid a dollar 15 an hour. And I'm just like, that's bullshit, man. Go, 
go read a book, go on. There's this thing called the internet where you can go look yeah. and see like what people get for pensions and stuff like that. Oh, I love, I love that one. That's cause that's, uh, you know, I work, I love the, everyone in the military. So I work 16 hours. That's like, let's be, I, I won't say you never did that, but let's be honest. You were the 16 hours you were there was like, you were at work. You weren't actually working those 16 hours. Yeah. You, you know, for weeks on that. <laughs> you, you were waiting on people to tell you to go home. That's <laughs> you're you waiting on a part and you were sitting and smoking, you know, it's yeah. and again, I'm not going to say that no one ever did a, you know, a long stretch of no sleep, but you know, but we have to sort of be honest with ourselves before we can talk to other people and say like, yeah, if you averaged out my entire you know term of service at 16 hours, the pay was crappy, but come on, most of that was eight. A couple of times you stayed at work cause you're waiting for a part. You know, yeah. Let's be real. I, I, I mean, I can remember, especially like when I was on the ship, especially on a Thursday or Friday, everybody tried to get all their maintenance and stuff done early on. I mean, there'd be days where we'd literally just be sitting there in the shop for, you know, a couple hours before Liberty call. And they'd be like, well, we can't go anywhere till Liberty call. <laughs> and so somebody come by and they're like, go clean shit or whatever. <laughs> so we would just stand there with like a sponge, just making little circles on the wall. The whole So, I always think about that when I see that stuff and I'm like, man, people just don't know. And yeah, I, I kind of get sick of that. Uh, which full disclaimer, I, I always get the 10% off at Lowe's too. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the, the one thing that I think probably does drive the good people out of the military is that mentality of, Hey, we all got to be here. I mean, Cell phones have been around for, you know, in wide distribution for 30 years, yet we still have to keep a person on standby in a building without a cell phone, you know, and we have people, you know, if something starts at eight, we have people show up at 630 in the morning because we can't have anyone late. It's like if I was running a business like that and I had all my people working by the hour, I would be fired the first time I tried that sort of thing. Um, And that's the kind of thing that does drive people absolutely insane. And it does have... Like anything else, you either pay it in money or you pay it in time or you pay it in retention. Um, when people get sick of that stuff, you know, all right, you made someone stay up at a awake in a room doing nothing, waiting for a phone call, and he's going to go fix airplanes the next day. Maybe you haven't thought about all the things that are wrong with this picture of how we're utilizing our people the right way. Well, I think the blended retirement system coming on board too is really going to give folks, you know, at the 10 year mark a lot easier out than what we had, you know, we had 10 years vested and you're like, well, I'm halfway there, you know, and now those folks with the blended retirement system, you know, they, they can take it a good chunk of cash with them that they've been getting matched. And if they were fiscally responsible and, and they can, they can hightail it out, you know, whenever, whenever it's good for them. And I think that's going to be a huge issue that the future leaders are going to have to tackle is how do we incentivize to keep folks in the 10 to 20 mark? Because I think even the ones, the ones that we knew, the, the real high performers that were going to go to Harvard business school or, you know, those types of folks that did the one payback toward and took off, you know, the ones that are on the fence at 10 years with a, with a, you know, briefcase full of cash. We didn't have that. I know I didn't. I mean, I had some money in the yep. TSB, but I wasn't smart enough uh, to do, you know, what I should be doing. But if you get, you know, if you treat it like the 401ks of today, they got a good exit plan. And it's it's a lot easier for them to just pick up and leave. 
Yeah, I think they're going to have to, if they just do the blended retirement and don't change anything else, they're going to see everyone smart because all the smart ones will invest that money and, and they'll be ready to get out and the dumb ones won't and they'll be broke and have to stay in. Uh, and you're going to a huge adverse selection. But they, if they are smart, everyone wins because if they can adjust the manpower system to take that into account, and maybe the right solution is, hey, get out of 10 and maybe you do four years of reserves while you do another civilian job, you get smart on that. And maybe it's, they offer you back onto the active duty force. Um, and that's unheard of. I mean, outside some specialized fields now, but you have to be open to those sort of things and run people, you know, people don't stay at, at the same company, even in the outside world, like they did in the fifties for 30 years and you get the gold watch and the military, if they want to keep good people, they're going to have to realize that the best people don't expect to slave away for 20 years at the hopes that they might get what they want at the end. And if you don't provide it for them, the opportunities are going to get out. So maybe you give them opportunities to get out, maybe get out halfway, come back in after they maybe got a degree and became smarter. And maybe you let them start back up again and don't treat it like it's a hallowed uh, fraternity of monks, you know, like the Night's Watch. You never see society again until they're done, you know, for the rest of their lives. You have to treat it like if, you're gonna, if you want the benefits of a flexible system, you have to treat it like a business and treat it like use that flexibility to, to improve things. Yeah, that's a great point. So, as, as far as I, I was just thinking about this random thought as we were kind of talking about like people who are, who we wanted to say and people who could do without, like I always remember something, somebody asked me and they're like, well, how do you know who you could do without? And I'm like, if it's somebody who sits around and talks all the time about how the place would fall apart without them, they're probably the first ones that need to go. <laughs> uh, but I, I just, uh, yeah, because I, I think like if if everyday society could get a look inside the military, like an unfiltered view, and and see like you know we're we're really no different. I, I shouldn't say we're no different. We are different, but we're a we're a federal government entity, and we're prone to all the same gross inefficiencies that that come with any government entity. And um, I mean, that's not to say that there's not good people there and they don't need good, you know, they still need good people there. Um, You know, I I think like Mike staying in was probably good for the community for a while because he's like just knowing him and, and his, how he thinks through problems and stuff like that versus some other people that I've seen get promoted to the same level as him. Like, you know, you just look at some of those guys and you're like, how the hell did that guy last this long to get to this point? And I think that's one of those people that we talked about before is like, well, you know, all the people that were better than him had enough of this shit and they, they ended up getting out. Yeah. I think the, one of the bigger problems with this who stays is that we equate getting promoted with being the right person to stay. Um, because those aren't necessarily the same types of people, right? So it's like you have to get promoted and promoted, and, and to get promoted to the next level, you have to be in charge of more and more people. Um, but the, so the people that, to use like, you know, aviation mechanics as an example, well, it'd be really good to have someone who knows everything with 25 years who's seen everything that could possibly go wrong with an aircraft and is actually out there fixing the aircraft. But there is no such person. Anybody who's actually in for 25 years has to be behind a desk at a headquarters managing the careers of many other mechanics. So, and nor can he teach other people to do that. So 
the selection for, and that's true for enlisted and officers, you know, sort of pilot, you know, if you want to keep flying for 30 years, no, it doesn't, it's not going to happen. After you pass Lieutenant Colonel commands, you might get in the cockpit every couple months. Um, and, but I mean, we need people to command too, but you have to have a way to sort those people out. Um, people that are good to stay in a specialized field and people who are suited to, to doing bigger and better things. Um, but by making the same screening process for both, you're not making either one the best. Um, I mean, you can't have people just laying low and smoking every day and calling themselves specialists. So you gotta have some way to filter those people out or just hanging out for nothing. But at the same point, you know, you can't uh, make those people who are legitimate experts in their tasks, who love fixing things, whatever it is, forcing that guy to go to school to and go to ever increasing job assignments. He doesn't want to do that either. You know, maybe that's the reason he got out and goes to work for United as a mechanic there because he wants to do that. Um, so again, it goes back to, you know, matching people to jobs and matching people to their, their true purposes. And the military tends to treat everyone as widgets um, and they're not. And if they give people a chance to get out 10 years with the pocket full of money, more of them are going to try and find things that they're better suited to. And again, I don't think anybody's a chump or not for staying in the military or getting out. But if you're not making the right selections, if you're not uh, making the system align with people and personalities, people are going to be unhappy and the institution gets the wrong people in there. Um, so that's, that's part of the challenge of managing manpower in the 21st century as opposed to back in the 20th century when everyone was, you know, the same. And you go further back, you know, 200 years, everyone's just like, point the spear this way, right? At this point, you know, even a, you know, even the most knuckle-dragging career field is pretty technical, right? So if you want to manage people and have the right aptitudes there, you have to make a, a concerted choice. And you have to align incentives with what you want. And if your incentives align, people like, get the hell out of here. Um, they're going to do that and you're not going to have any control over it and you're going to get all the wrong people staying and all the, you know, the right people leaving. Yeah. That's uh, I, I was thinking about that, like in the, the special operations community, something I noticed, if you look at like a, an element that goes out and takes down, you know, does the big mish where it used to be just, you know, however many guys, 16 guys that all had guns and, you know, maybe there was a breacher and a sniper and a, a radio guy. Now they've significantly changed the way that they do things now where they have all these enablers. That's what, I mean, that's for me as an EOD tech integrated with yeah. a soft unit, I'm an enabler The you know, you think about that, like, it's not, I, I kind of like that knuckle dragger comment. That's what made me think about this now is now you have some like your basic even marine corps grunt i mean when i was in afghanistan i was working with some infantry dudes trying to show them like hey here's how you actually use these metal detectors like first of all you have to turn it on because we did a whole patrol and you didn't have this thing turned on and second of all you actually have to hold it down to the ground you can't but i'm not saying the guys are dumb it's just nobody ever showed them the right way to do things um but that's going back to the point that I was making. You bring in all these these specialists to do this this kind of work like that, and then you, I think, as as technology gets better and better, um, it becomes the norm, and then you get to see where even the people who are the lowest knuckle draggingest people ever, they adapt. They're able to to take on that stuff, and and become you know, something that 10 or 15 years ago, 
nobody thought they would have been right it's like yeah i know the spear goes that way right you don't have to tell me you told me 10 years ago yeah and there's a real good book uh um general scales uh wrote basically saying how much more technical combat arms have gotten and we used to use like hey it used to be hey the reason you got 18 year olds is because they're total disregard for their own personal safety and they'll do what they're told yeah. and as things get more sophisticated hey it's obviously they have to start somewhere but hey that guy in the squad may need to have a couple of years behind him before he can capably do his job and if you're going to make him also operate satellite communications and operate a drone and all this other stuff you're asking him to do well maybe you know the idea that you can make him a fire team leader in a year or two and then make him a squad leader a couple of years after that and before that he's on to do other jobs well maybe we need those the guys in the line platoon to you know, be at least five, six year veterans but under the system you've got right now, you know, they've got to be NCOs or they get, you know, thrown out of there. Um, so, you know, professionalizing the service means you need people staying longer, not shorter, and especially the, I think the air force Navy probably do a little bit better job managing it. But I mean, the Marine Corps and the army are we work in a pyramid. We have a whole lot of people at the bottom and we funnel more out every year and we, you know, are pretty much left with who we need to the end. Um, that model doesn't work if you, if you have a technically advanced force or expect them to make decisions. You know, I don't honestly, you know, there are a lot of great 18 year olds, but you probably don't want them making, you know, war and peace decisions any more than you absolutely have to. So maybe you have to have a system where you season those guys in those, those ground level positions because they are going to be in situations in the future where, you know, foreign policy depends on them. Yeah. And uh, if they if they aren't mature enough, if they aren't skilled enough to do it, because they get, all got out after four years, well, you're you're kind of hosed. That, I've I've seen that too, and I, I know Mike. Like you look at like a new guy on an EOD platoon, right? Just completely, you know, like space cadet look in his face, doesn't know shit yet. But uh, the guy the difference between a, a guy who just checks in and hasn't done a workup cycle or deployment and a guy who comes back from their first deployment, the confidence is there. The, you can tell they're a little more capable. Unfortunately, you know, they probably think they're a lot better than they are, which I, I like to call that one pump chump syndrome. Um, so you always got to knock those guys down a couple notches, <laughs> put it back in their places. But uh, yeah, that's in, it's really incredible to see the change in that when somebody goes kind of metamorphosizes into that, you know, what, Hey dude, you're starting to live up to your potential now. And, and so for me, I kind of look now, even where I was four years ago to, to how I am now, like the way that I work now and do things throughout the day, you know, if I had gone back to myself a year before I retired and said, Hey, this is where you're going to be in a few years. I would have been like, shut up, dude. That's, that's, I, I'm not going to do that. I would never want, I would never, you know, I had no desire to do what I did now. It's just, I, I kind of chased an opportunity and it led me down that path. So it sounds like you kind of had that same experience too, right? You went to go, wanted to go work for a police department and you did that and you're kind of like, Oh, this is, you know, I'm not really crazy about this anymore. So was that, obviously that was probably like a kind of a, an epiphany for you. Did, did you have anything else that kind of led you to where you are right now when you got out like that? Uh, yeah. So when I was, I was there for a couple of years, you know, like I said, it wasn't a bad job. I mean, I enjoyed the flying, but just wasn't getting that, uh, you know what, this is what I want to do until I retire kind of thing. 
And, you know, a buddy of mine from the Marine Corps, uh, uh, he was in, in the Baltimore area for business. So we went out for dinner and he said, you know what, you just don't seem like you're, uh, you know, really digging this that much. Like, well, you know, we have a, our old CEO works for this company and, and they've got a position working business development and, and the aircraft used to fly. Like, all right, well, I know what business development is, but I'm willing to talk about it. And so again, it's uh, a little bit of just random luck in that case, uh, managed me to look at a direction that I hadn't looked for at all. Um, you know, the fact that you, know, you get to some place where you can use your military expertise, um, talking about, you know, working with the government on, you know, some of the stuff you used to do in the service, that, that totally popped up kind of out of nowhere. And I'm sort of hesitant to say that I might not have taken control of my own destiny without that nudge to have done it. Um, that, that's, uh, that someone else giving me that clue that, Hey, you know what? You're probably smarter than just wiggling sticks for, for a living for the rest of your life. So why don't you get, why don't you at least check this out? Um, and, and that's the sort of thing I, I think, again, there's luck and there's planning and you shouldn't let your life's work come down to, Oh yeah, your buddy, you know, met you for dinner. Um, and uh, I, I think a lot of people um, rely on that. I mean, the, the, and then it, one, is a testament to the power of networking. Um, but two, um, it would have been a lot easier to tap, tap into that had I planned it, planned it out. Um, and uh, I, I credit him with, with a lot of that uh, steering me the right way to that. Unfortunately, that friend's a, a, veteran, a, vet, a victim of veteran suicide a couple of years later. Um, mm as he was transitioning. Uh, so it sort of put a little poignancy every time I think about that particular story. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, um, we actually talked a little bit about that, uh, with a guy that we recorded our last episode with, uh, who, you know, kind of dealt with that personally. And, you know, luckily he survived that and he's, he's doing well now, but what, I guess, what would you say were, some of the things that really kind of helped you along the way as you were transitioning out? Um, well, on the first transition, uh, I will, you know, again, you know, the fact that I ended up in the wrong place is kind of testimony to the, the, the lack of a system. Uh, the current system of what in the Marine Corps is called SEPs and TAPs uh, is just kind of a, a one size fits all. Um, the here's the guy you call to get your VA claim done. You know, here's here's where you need to go to to uh, you know get your last pay arrears settled out. This is where you get your SGLI, change to VGLI, all that. Um, and oh yeah, there's a job fair next Tuesday, and it's all offering construction jobs and police jobs. Um, is pretty much the military system of doing that, and that's for you know a guy who's you know mid grade, yes, but 20 years. But I'm also with guys who are at the four year mark in that same class. Um, so really, I, I say that to say this is it was pretty much self-service. You know, I, you know, I'd you know, been to school, you know, I'm reasonably smart, maybe not the smartest, but at least, you know, passing the 50th percentile, I hope, is able to sort of stumble around and go to the right services online and figure it out. Um, and then it was only after I got in the real world and, and you know, experienced that a little bit that I kind of did a course correction. Um, and I, I learned the lessons that I wish I would have had the, the three years prior, which is the, you know, primarily, you know, one, figuring out what I wanted. Um, I, I think that's one thing that both at that 10 year mark, at that 15 year mark, all the way up until the 20 when I got out, 
Um, never really having a true north as far as where I was going. Uh, put me behind, hate to use the cliche of the power curve, as far as figuring this out. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I'll, be, I'll be the one to admit, yeah, I got, I got a divorce and uh, I took my former spouse's input probably a bit more than I should have into account at that 10-year mark. Um, because again, if you don't have a, something guiding you, pretty much you're just going to go where the, the, the wind takes you, if you will. Um, and so I sort of mistook the collective we for the, Hey, you know, for better or worse, you're the guy who's, who signatures on that uh, re-up form. You're the guy who is going overseas on deployment. You're the guy who is stuck in an office. Now you have to balance that. Obviously you don't want to have, Hey, it's all me. I'm the, I'm the one at the job. But in the end, yes, you, it is you. You have to make sure what is it you value? Is it you know, the family lifestyle? Is it the work-life balance? Is it having time with the kids? Whatever it is, is fine. But figure out what it is, right? Because again, I was sort of in that weird halfway between, all right, this is what I want to do in the Marine Corps. This is what I want to do for the family. And we sort of merge those together. And I come out with a solution at the end, which has ended up not being a very good solution or at least not the optimal one. Um, so again, I come back to the, if you know yourself and align that with where you want to be, that's nine tenths of the way there. It's, it's not really the, the how that's the issue. It's the, it's the what, it's what the goal is. And once you find out what the, you know, the end state is, you can backtrack it. But too many times it's, oh crap, the end is staring me six months in the face. I better get on the phone with the recruiters. And oh yeah, I got a letter from, you know, military headhunter here, I better check what's in there. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's stress is never a great time to make a great decision. And honestly, that last six months, I was sweating it like, well, no one's going to make a job offer this soon out, but at the same point in six months, the paycheck stopped coming and I've got this the house payment and this, that, and the other. Um, which does bring me to a secondary point is probably the biggest thing someone can, or one of the bigger things you can do to make that decision easier is reduce your overhead, your personal overhead. So if you just bought the, the dope house in the nice subdivision three years before you at your last duty station, three years before you get out and you've got $2,000 plus mortgage payments, which are by the way, whatever more than your BAH for that region, You've got that hanging over your head and probably not thousands upon thousands of dollars of disposable income to keep that thing going if you don't have a paycheck. That puts a whole lot of stress. Take the first thing that comes down the pike. Um, so part first one of, of depressurizing, prepare yourself, prepare your family, prepare your pocketbook. And if you do have a couple months to spare, that takes a lot of the pressure off from taking the first thing that comes down the pike. Um, be that from a financial side, be that from a family side, all the rest that's probably one of the bigger things I could have done to, you know, you never want to make that key decision when you're under maximum stress. Um, and, that, and part of that setting yourself up to do that is happens months, years ahead of time in setting yourself up financially, family wise, everything else to, to be ready to have a little, you know, cushion at the end, if you will. Yeah. That, that was something that I, I was really glad I had, uh, you know, a large chunk of change saved up because I think it took me a couple months just to get my pension check going and then another probably four months to get my VA disability. And, you know, I went to work in financial services, which, you know, you don't make, it took me a couple of years <laughs> till I got to where I was like, okay, 
now I'm starting to make money off of this. Uh, but you know, I, I, I felt that. Right. And I was like, man, I'm glad I, I prepared myself for this, but yeah, it's tough. I, I think I'm reminded of the, the seven P's, which a lot of people are probably familiar with the prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Uh, so it, it sounds like you, you know, but you, you came out on the other side and you're still okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I have no complaints. I mean, I, I'm happy with where I am and I, I sort of like, you know, Hey, you know, I'd like to sort of be able to tell myself like, Hey, this, you know, I'm, I've, you know, achieved some reasonable amount of success and, you know, pretty happy with where I am as far as uh, the, the post veteran journey. Um, but definitely took a couple bends more than I needed to, you know, the, the, the to spend two years in the wrong job, uh, you know, probably in the wrong location, et cetera, was the price I paid to get to the right place. Uh, hopefully someone else can avoid doing that. I would sort of, the, the caveat to give is a lot of military people think the first job has to be perfect. It doesn't, you know, it is a little bit of a journey of discovery, right? It's not like the military where, you know, that son of a bitch quit the Marine Corps, you know, he should have been on this deployment. No, it, it's, it, it's the, the civilian world, I would say one of the pluses is it is just business. You know, no one is going to hate you forever because you decided to leave their company. Besides, you decide to leave that job. Um, it's it's part of the cost of doing business, and people come, people go, and you shouldn't think it's disloyal to leave them. That's that's part of the the benefit. There is no four year contract that keeps you staying there. Um, so there there is room for mistakes. I, I'll also say that you know psychologically, don't get wrapped up about what your friends are doing. And I think that's part of the, the secondary issue. There's a whole lot of pressure. It's like, oh, so-and-so got a great job here, there, the other place when they got out. And they've got the, the great house and the beautiful family. And I see them on Facebook and that son of a bitch, uh, you know, that, that's, the, that's because of the media environment we're in. You know, everyone has a erroneous belief that everyone, someone else has it freaking nailed. You know what? One thing I've learned is like everybody is, everyone is, you know, I get oh, faking is the wrong word, but everyone's got their thing. Everyone's got their, their burden, their bearing. So just relax. You're not falling behind the, the power curve. You're not falling behind everyone. You don't know what they're actually going through. So put the social media down and focus on what's right for you. Um, and, and, and as long as you're, again, that North, that compass is set um, and you have the work ethic behind it and you have, you properly prepare for it, you're, you're going to get where you need to go. You know, so stop, stop, you know, don't stress out comparing yourselves to other people, whether it's inside or outside the military, um, concentrate on, on making your own self and your own house. Right. Yeah. That, that's a funny point that you put up, up you're talking about the, uh, the social media, cause it seems to be the ones that are putting all that crap out constantly on, on some of those social media sites. seems like they're trying to convince everybody that their, their stuff is wired tight and more trying to convince themselves. But, uh, you know, it seems like the ones who have their stuff, the most wired tight is the ones that you're like, oh, well, man, I haven't heard from that guy for a while. And then you reach out to them and they're like, oh, that dude's killing it. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. crazy. And whatever, and whatever you do, don't be that one angry veteran guy who's uh, posting, uh, you know, just hateful stuff and resentful stuff every day. And I think there's, there's probably the, the two extremes of there's that you're people that portray an extremely happy life and the people who portray everything is wrong. And there's very little of the average day-to-day life, which is 99% of the people out there. Yeah. Um, 
and we spend so much time online nowadays, we, I think that miscalibrates the goals a little bit or the realism factor just a little bit when people start to look at, oh, where should I be right now? Because whether we admit it or not, we compare ourselves to the people that we are around. And I think that's a, a factor psychologically that, that, you know, I think some people get intimidated by it or at least, you know, steers them the wrong way when they look at, oh, that's, that's why I see someone else doing like, you know, focus on yourself. That's, it's nice to know what other people are doing, but, uh, you know, keep the internal, you know, truth, uh, aligned and the rest will, what rest will sort itself out. Something I, I like that, that you do too, like all the articles and stuff. Cause it, you sent me some of the links to some of your writings and I was reading through that and I thought, well, that's, that's cool. It's kind of like a, is that like an outlet for you or is that just, you know, you're like, Hey, I want to do this as kind of part of my personal branding, because I know that's, you know, one thing they talk about, Hey, if you want to, if you want people to, to kind of look at you as sort of a thought leader, write things that, you know, interest them, right. Be thoughtful. Um, so I was kind of wondering, like, how did you get into doing all that? It was uh, just like everything else. Unfortunately, it's a little bit of chance and a little bit of effort. Uh, I was always sort of a, uh, I guess, tactics nerd or, or just a geek in general, I guess you'd say. So when it came to military stuff initially, like, uh, you know, the Marine Corps Gazette is like the professional publication in the Marine Corps. So I had some things on aviation that were bugging me uh, tactics wise and training wise. So I wrote a, a formal article, you know, and for a professional journal about it. Um, did that for a couple times and eventually it caught the eye of uh, task and purpose, you know, want me to write about the Osprey. And so I did that and then they sort of liked what I did there and it became sort of a recurring thing. Um, and it, you know, morphed over time, but it's sort of on the, it's sort of on the bridge between a hobby and a side gig. You know, I do enjoy the writing. I do enjoy, you know, writing about topics I care about, whether it's veterans issues or just uh, policy, military, et cetera. And it gives me an outlet for that. You know, I'm, when I was working as a police pilot, it was that extra couple hundred bucks a month wasn't, you know, was uh, nice to have as well. Um, and the personal branding piece kind of by accident, I try and project the, the image I, you know, that's professional and, and something that's uh, people, you know, show valuable insight, at least to some people. Um, yeah, and over time, people just, hey, were you the guy who wrote that? I, you know, I really enjoyed that. You know, yes, it does. It's a nice icebreaker from time to time. So it's kind of a combination It, you know, went from, you know, a no, you know, geeky hobby to side gig to, you know, part of my professional identity, um, over time. And I, you know, I think that's, you know, ideally if you do have a side sideline business, sometimes that's just how, it, how those things evolve. Sometimes they evolve into a full-time occupation. I don't know if that's ever going to exactly happen with this, but I think it's kind of a valuable, addition to my kind of professional portfolio and, and at least gives me a, a chance to kind of express the ideas. I think not that many people go out and say, um, sometimes that's got me probably a little hot water, but, uh, I go by the dots. Somebody had to say it. And as long as you say it in a respectful and uh, positive manner, hopefully people get the idea and then take something valuable out of it. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the fire don't burn hot if you don't stoke the coals once in a while. So I, I, uh, I probably sounded like a real country bumpkin right there, but, uh, no, I, I, I like it. And you know, you're not out there just writing, you know, a bunch of bullshit like, Oh, you know, we're all great and everything. And, you know, people should be thanking us for 
uh, set. Like I, I like seeing people take jabs at the the guys that wear their uniform to Applebee's on Veterans Day. And <laughs> well, I think the first mistake there was going to Applebee's. Period. And then the second mistake was going on Veterans Day. That's it's a twofold error right there. I think the only the only acceptable place I'm going to get sued by the Applebee's people. The the only legitimate time to go to an Applebee's is when you're stuck in the airport. There's no other good time to go to an Applebee's. <laughs> well, where I grew up, Applebee's was one of the finest eating establishments in town. So, <laughs> so I got, yeah, I'm going to tell I'm going to tell go a funny ahead. Osprey story before before we get off. It was in 07, I think it was late 07, maybe in early 08, and uh, we were over in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and Trevor was in Baghdad, and me and our buddy they ended up he ended up getting killed in Syria. He was the first first guy to get killed in Syria, Scott Dayton, but he was my teammate, and so we're out in Habania between Ramadi and Fallujah, and we were doing a lot of vehicle drop-offs and, and insertions. That was with SEAL Team 2. And we would do a lot of vehicle insertions, you know, and then walk into the target and so on and so forth. And, you know, out there, as, as you probably well know, I mean, that's like the Wild West and there's a lot of, that, you know, open areas and you're not monitoring that, that traffic that much, so on and so forth. And when I first got there, I was like, hey, well, what are you guys doing if you, uh, if you run across, you know, like a you know, you think it's an ID right there. And they're like, oh, we just walk down there and check it. And, you know, if there's nothing there, we just get back in the truck. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not real cool with that. Uh, so I went to the robotics place and I said, Hey man, I need to get me a, a couple of robots so I can throw them in the back of the truck. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. Who are you with? And I say, oh, yeah, I am with the seal team too. And they're like, ain't happening, buddy. These are, you're, you're a soft guy. You don't get robots if you're a soft guy. So it just so happens Trevor and those guys had like three, I think it was three Talon robots in a, in a Connex box sitting in their compound. You guys were doing, they were doing DAs uh, in Baghdad. So they really didn't need robots, but I mean, we were out running around all over the desert and all over, you know, Al Ambar. And so Scott and I flew to Baghdad to pick up a couple of these robots, Talon robots and bring them back. Well, we're hanging out there and we're waiting with our talent robot boxes. And they're pretty big. Next thing you know, here, here comes an Osprey and we're like, Oh shit. Well, we've never flown one of these before. So we're like, all right, cool. And they, and it's, it's pitch dark out, you know, it's night. They were doing those ring routes. And so we're like, all right, cool. Well, we're standing, you know, you would just sit there on the side of the tarmac. And when you found, you know, the flight that was, I think you wrote it on your, I think you wrote on your hand, I think where you were going or whatever. And then the crew chief would come over and that was like your, your ticket to get on whatever, whatever bird you were going to get on. So the, the crew chief comes over and looks at our hand. He's like, yep, you're with us. So we're like, okay, cool. We got these boxes. He's like, yep. All right, bring them. So we, we loose load them on the deck of the Osprey and we sit in the seats and Scott's across from me. And the next thing I know, uh, that pilot takes that thing off and the rate of climb on that thing and the way he pitched that Osprey, our robots almost flew right out the back. Cause we didn't tie them down. We didn't ratchet strap them down, nothing. So the two robots that we finally got that I've been trying to get for two months, almost went flying right out the back of the aircraft and Scott and I are holding on to them things, just trying to keep those robots from not hitting that, the, cause they had a, y'all had a gunner on the back. I think he was manning a 50 cal 
which that guy has the best job, I think, in the Marine Corps, because as soon as that thing got up to like above what a couple thousand feet, that guy could just take a nap where, you know, you had like the uh, the 53 pilots or the 53 crew and those gunners, man, they were on the guns the whole time, the whole time they were flying. But the Osprey guys, once they got up to a certain altitude, it was like, all right, we're, we're good, man. You can't do anything with this thing anyway. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's that acceleration catches a lot of people off balance. There's been a couple of bigger things going out, but uh, one of the more amusing ones was, uh, yeah, it was in Iraq. I wasn't with this unit, but uh, they had a general's aide carrying the general's attache case full of uh, um, classified documents and general papers. Yes, general papers. And uh, that thing did this shot out the back uh, as they accelerated out. And uh, there was a very unhappy patrol that had to go find that Ooh. said briefcase full of classified documents before uh, uh, anyone else got it. So luckily they, uh, they got that stuff back, but yeah, that's uh, something you have to get used to after flying helicopters for a little bit. Caveat to Mike's story. There's a piece of that that he left out that, uh, you know, I know he heard about afterwards. So uh, my team leader and I, I think when you guys came in, we were, out of town doing some doing a big mesh or something like that. And we came back and my team leader got super pissed off because him and Scott had a kind of a practical joke war going. And when Scott was there in our camp, he had found my team leader's bed and spray painted some uh, phallic like uh, stencils onto my team leader's bed sheets. <laughs> he got so mad. He called Scott and he's like, you know what? Petty officer Dayton from now on, I'm just going to have to maintain a strictly professional relationship. <laughs> and I was a team chief. So I got to sit there and just watch him go back at each other. It was, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Totally unrelated to what we're talking about, but we I, said I was, <laughs> speaking of those sorts of images being painted on, we were in Kosovo and there's MH-53s for the Navy coming resupplying our, our unit. And we had an enterprise <laughs> staff sergeant spray painted on something like that with a stencil onto the side of the 53. And he didn't really think that through because all our other stuff was still on the ship and had to be ferried out, which in turn was stenciled with such a design <laughs> when it got to us. Hundreds of toolboxes. <laughs> with those stencils on them. That's, well played. Uh, well, it's oh, like Scott, it's, when we first got to Iraq and they were doing, we were doing turnover and we were working uh, with partner forces, you know, with the ISWAT, the Iraqi SWAT team. And they went out on a, they went out and they took a photo of the group and Scott's a real, he was a real tall guy, probably what, six, three, I think. Yeah. And uh, one of the Iraqi SWAT guys, right before the photo was taken, reaches over and grabs Scott by the hand. And you can see this look, which is common in their culture, but you can just see the disgust in Scott's face as the photo was taken. Well, of course, me being, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the great uh, team leader, I took that photo and I sent it to Trevor and Taylor, knowing that they had this battle going on. And, and I think it made it all the way to Guam, uh made within it back a, a little within a day and it it was his face and that photo was at the end of you know at the end of every brief questions and there was scott and his face 
holding hands with that Iraqi SWAT guy. The look on his face, it was, I describe it as like, God damn it. Everybody I know is going to see this and I'm never going to hear the end of it. And, and he always blamed the photo getting out on Taylor, but it was actually me. I, I was <laughs> everybody. Yep. Good stuff. Well, <laughs> I know we kind of ran over a little bit, Carl, but uh, we appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your perspective. What, uh, any other last tidbits of advice you have for folks that are getting out of the military right now? You know, I think, you know, first figure out what you want and start from there. And two, you know, don't be intimidated. You know, everyone stumbles, everyone is looking for, you know, their way through, you know, whether the current situation or their way through the job. So, you know, don't be, don't be so proud to ask for help uh, from those around you. Uh, I think there's, people are always willing to assist if you just ask. Um, but I think we're, we're sort of brainwashed and thinking that the, the tough guy never asked for help. And unfortunately, those are the people usually end up, uh, people who fancy themselves the toughest are usually ones who falter along the way because they didn't ask for that help. So, you know, tap, tap into that network, tap into the people, you know, reach out to people you barely know, because those are a lot of times the people that, you know, your friends already know the same things you do. It's the people who are like one or two steps past them or who you, you've just met. Undoubtedly 99% of people are willing to help you out or give you tips. So reach out, uh, you know, today's internet makes that possible. So, so use that. And, uh, again, don't be too uh, proud to ask and, uh, you know, learn what you need to do to set that uh, the compass the right direction. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. I know that's, um, you know, I found even after I got out, I was like, well, I, I still need to 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 work on that a little bit. And um, it sounds like you and me kind of did that same <laughs> had the same strategy towards getting out. But I'm glad to hear that you're doing okay. What's the What's the best place people can uh, connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best one. It's, uh, Carl Forsling on LinkedIn. Um, if happy to connect, um, if you do connect, please send a note along with it. So I know, you know, where you're from and, uh, where is, I know, I know you're not a, uh, one of these, uh, scam investment advisors, but other than that, be happy to connect with any listener and, and, uh, give them, give them uh, tips or, uh, you know, hear their stories. Uh, always happy to help. And then, uh, right now I'm doing a lot of stuff with, uh, coffeeordie.com. So uh, look at the stuff up there and always have a new take on something military. Uh, people want to read that. We appreciate it, Carl. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. Carl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a right. no problem. Good take talk. care. Thank you for listening to the Get to Vet podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on LinkedIn. If you'd like to come on the show, email us at Mike or Trevor at gettovet.net. That's get the number two vet.net and let us help you get to vet.